0: Isaiah 52, and we're going to be in Isaiah 52 and 53 this morning, and we are here today celebrating the God of impossibilities. According to the law of physics, the law of chemistry, the law of biology, a human body can't walk on water, water cannot turn to wine, diseases and deformities cannot be healed instantaneously, a virgin can't give birth, and death is death. Yet today marks the central proclamation, the central confession of our faith. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And we want to shout that and just consider what the resurrection, what what it implies. Jesus Christ, the son of God, was brutally crucified where, where he endured hell upon a cross. He went through hell on the cross and after three days he was bodily resurrected, never to die Again, that puts Jesus in a very unique category among all of humanity, meaning he's in a category of one. Amen. One who died, was resurrected never to die again. Therefore, our faith, hear this, it rises and it falls on the resurrection of Jesus. We're not here denying that. Paul said this, Paul said, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then what we are doing is futile and we are still in our sins. And Paul says we should be envied because we're idiots. What basically what Paul says. If Christ hasn't raised the dead, we're idiots for doing what we're doing. But he said, but he has. Yeah. But he has. Even the words of one theologian, William Lane Craig, he says this, Without the belief in the resurrection, the Christian faith could not have come into being. The disciples would have remained crushed and defeated men. Even had they continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher, his crucifixion would have forever silenced any hopes of his being the Messiah. The cross would have remained the sad and shameful end of his career. The origin of Christianity therefore hinges on the belief of the early disciples that that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Paul tells us there were enough people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. One one person says this, if you were to have taken all the people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead and put them on a witness stand and um, gave them 15 minutes of testimony, their testimony, all of them together combined, would have lasted over 125 hours. 125 hours of testimony that Jesus was alive after he was dead. If the resurrection didn't happen, then it's game over for all things Christian. It's game over. But if the resurrection did happen, and we are here because the Word of God says that it did, then it's game on. It's game on, and everything changes. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. In fact, it even changes a brutal cross to something of beauty. That's what the resurrection does. Don't miss that. And this morning, we are continuing in our series on Jesus in the Old Testament. Today, I want us to look at the most incredible prophecy of the death and the resurrection of Jesus found in the Old Testament. It's found in Isaiah 52 and 53. This chapter has been called the Bible in miniature Because it's the Bible wrapped up in a few verses, and it's the gospel in essence. It's the whole picture of what God did for us. And the amazing reality is that these words that we're about to read were written 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years, they were written before he was born. This, This chapter is truly the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy, and it points us amazingly and graciously to Mount Calvary. Just think about that, Mount Everest, it holds the undisputed position of being the highest point on earth, rising five and a half miles above sea level. Standing on top of this majestic mountain makes climbers feel like they are on top of the world. One foot in China, one foot in Tibet, with winds exceeding over 100 miles an hour and temperatures dropping to as low as negative 76 degrees Fahrenheit, even those who glimpse the unrivaled beauty of Everest summit, they, they can't do so for long. But when they do, there is more beauty, simply more beauty than any single person can appreciate. All the beauty of surrounding the majestic treasure of the east, but at the same time, there's more danger than we could ever Imagine, ascending from the pages of Scripture, Isaiah 52 and 53 stand as the spiritual Mount Everest, pointing us to the glory of Christ and the the eternal salvation that he gives to us. As we journey up this mountain, we encounter a prophetic picture that we can appreciate. We can all appreciate, but none of us can exhaust. Meaning, we can't come to the bottom of it. We'll never come to the bottom of what Jesus did us. And again, despite being written 700 years before Jesus came, these verses position us at the very foot of the cross. And the writer positions us there as if he was writing from the very foot of the cross. But here's the deal. Here's what this whole chapter that we're about to read is is crying out to us. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. Listen, if you miss Jesus today, is. Frank said, if if you make the day about bunnies and and eggs and family, but you miss Jesus, you've missed it all. You've missed it all. Don't miss Jesus today. Again, these words written 700 years before Jesus came. And as you're about to hear, they're written in the past tense. It's weird. It's a future event going to happen 700 years in the future, but it's written as if it's already happened. And here's the point. Isaiah is so confident that what God said will happen that he writes it as if it already did. He writes it as if it already has happened. For Isaiah not only got this amazing encounter that we talked about a few uh, weeks ago in Isaiah 6 of seeing Jesus on the throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple with glory, the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah not only got that, Isaiah got this. He got a glimpse of the type of person the Messiah would be. And he got a glimpse of what Jesus would accomplish for the world. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. The verses will also be on the screen. We're going to read Isaiah 52 beginning at verse 13 and then read through chapter 53 together. and Just hear the words of this prophecy. We're going to kind of connect the dots in just a second. But beginning at verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, today, speak to us, O God, by your word and through your spirit. For those that are here today or might be here that don't know you, may today be a day of salvation. May today be a day of recognizing that Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. That if we call on his name as Savior and Lord, we will be saved. I pray for others in this room that are saved, that today would be a day that, Jesus, you would once again maybe come alive again in their hearts and lives. That they would just humble themselves before you and receive afresh and anew, Father, what you have done for them through your Son. Again, speak, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. I just want you, just real quick, consider what this prophet predicted. Just follow with me here. Look in your Bible. Start in chapter 52, beginning at verse 13. The suffering servant will be lifted up from the earth. Then verse 14, the suffering servant will be abused to the point of physical disfigurement. Not even being recognized. Now we move on to chapter 53, verse 3. The suffering servant will be rejected by man. Also, verse 3, he would experience sorrow and grief and would not be recognized for who he is and what he is doing. We move on to verse 5. The suffering servant would be pierced for our sins. He would be punished so that we can have peace with God. He would bring salvation and healing to his people. Verse 6, the suffering servant would bear the sins of his people as a substitute. Verse 7, the the suffering servant will bear his burden in silence. Let me just pause and say, that's a miracle today. Because here's the deal. People love to run their mouths. People love to talk, but Jesus, I mean... I, I love people, I, I love Facebook, about, I always love when people say, I'm off of Facebook, you'll never see me again, and three days later, like they're Jesus, they're back on. <laughs> I'm here again, it's just me. People, we, listen, we can't shut up. But yet here Jesus is in the midst of being wrongfully accused, and he opened not his mouth. Why? Why? He was innocent. Because he trusted what God was going to do. That is the beauty of it. Then verse 9, the suffering servant will be buried in a rich man's tomb and would die as an innocent man. Verse 10, the suffering servant will die because it is the Lord's will and he will live beyond his death. And then verse 11, the suffering servant will make many righteous before God. And that's just a few of the predictions mentioned. Again, this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Does that get your attention? It's supposed to. Does that make you think of Jesus? It's supposed to. It's supposed to make us think and stand in awe of who he is and why he came. What an amazing God we serve. What an amazing Savior. What an amazing message. What an amazing message. And what Isaiah 53 reminds us, and we're going to point this out at the end as well, is that none of this happened by accident. None of this happened by accident. This was all planned by God from the beginning. And when we come to Isaiah 52 and 53, this is, it's the last of, there are four servant songs in Isaiah, songs that point us to what the Messiah would do. Well, this is the last of those songs. And what I want to lay before you today is just real quickly, I want to lay before you three truths concerning the suffering servant. Now granted, uh, let me just be quite honest, I had a hard time today because I could have come up with 100 points in this message. And I knew we were short on time and I was short on your endurance being able to go with me um, for that time. So I try to keep it as short as possible. So just three amazing pictures of this suffering or this servant, excuse me, and who he is. And let me just lay them before you. Number one is this. He is the suffering servant. He's a suffering servant. Look with me at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Then verse 7 says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. When you walk through readings like we just did, it's pretty evident that this was a painful ordeal. This was a painful ordeal. We read in Isaiah 52 and 53 of great agony of terrible suffering, of utter misery. Let me just pause and say something. I hate calling Christianity a religion because it's a relationship, but let me, oftentimes it gets lumped in with religions, but let me just kind of lay it this way No other religion has at its heart the humiliation of its God, yet ours does. Our God was humiliated. Our God was humiliated for us. That's the whole point. The one, our God who is the source of all joy, our God who is the source of all peace, our God whom before the angels bow in adoration is called a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. His suffering was not just a momentary part of his experience. His suffering would characterize his whole life. He was a man of suffering, well acquainted with grief. Grief and here's what I know follow with me here in our human condition in our human sinful condition We are often tempted to turn away from pain and suffering What I mean by that is this we are tempted to turn away from people who are suffering We see them suffering and we go like I'm just going to look the other way as if I didn't see them and keep going We are tempted in that way and many did that with jesus They looked away when he was suffering and even went further to say, God must be punishing him for this. And they were right. God was punishing him. But what we fail to remember is that as we look away from the one who is suffering going, I don't want to see him. He's suffering for us. He's suffering for your sin and my sin. And yet we have the audacity to look away and say, how dare he? People, you know, people in the world they make fun of us because we would dare, we would dare worship and we would rejoice in such suffering and sorrow. What they fail to realize is that we have come to realize, because God is a holy God, that we deserve this. And Jesus took it in our place. Therefore, it becomes a thing of beauty for us. It becomes a beautiful thing for us. Because hear this when we hurt. We find comfort in the fact that Jesus was a man of sorrows. He he knows what it's like to feel as we do. Thus, his sympathy isn't theoretical. It is real. God the Son knows and He's shared in your suffering and my suffering. He is with us even when we're overcome by grief and despair. He is with us and in time He will deliver us from all the grief and despair of this world. But in the meantime, our hearts are encouraged today by the knowledge that Jesus is with us. He understands us. He sympathizes with us with us and praise be to God he suffered for us now here's what I know none of us there's not one person in this room that can hang a sign on your house that says no hurts inside or no hurts here no pain here you might do it but you're lying every single one of us we know pain we know suffering we know sorrow we know heartbreak Do we not? Okay, four of us do. The rest of you, I want your life. I want your, your life is apparently awesome. But most of us understand, listen, pain and sorrow are a natural part of our lives. But, and here's what I want you to understand. Every accomplishment in your life, no matter how amazing it might be, can't exempt you from griefs and sorrows and pains in this life. They can't exempt you, but... Your grief, your pain, and your sorrow don't have have to separate you from the one who suffered for you. For he is with us. He's with us. He suffered for us. Which leads us to our second truth. He is the suffering servant, but secondly, he is the substituting servant. He's the substituting servant. Look at verses 4 and 5 as you see on the screen. Surely he has borne our griefs, and if you like marking your Bibles like I do, underline those words, our. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. At the end of verse 6, it even says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Isaiah repeated this word, our, over and over and over again to remind us whose sins Jesus would die for. He wasn't dying for his sins. He wasn't hanging for his sins. He wasn't being punished for his sins. It was for your sins and my sins. We should have died. We should have been afflicted. We should have Been pierced. We should have been crushed. We should have had the wrath of God poured out upon us. In other words, don't miss it. God the Father treated Jesus as you and I deserve to be treated so that he could treat us the way that Jesus deserves to be treated. Let me say it again because I don't think you got that. God the Father treated Jesus like you and I deserve to be treated so that he can treat Jesus or so he can treat us, excuse me, the way that. So he can treat you and I the way that Jesus deserves to be. If you'd have got it the first time, I wouldn't have had to say it again. So that we deserve. And here's the deal. Here's a, the Bible says this. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, knew no sin, to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yeah. Meaning we give Jesus our sin. He gives us his righteousness. It's the worst trade ever. It's the worst trade ever. Let me put it in, in terms that maybe you'll get. You get Jesus and he gets you. That's the worst trade ever. It's the worst trade ever. He gets you. He gets me. That's a terrible, terrible trade. But Jesus laid it down. He gave it up for us. Don't miss this here. I can't, a different way to say it, maybe that we won't miss it, is the essence of your sin and my sin is that we put ourselves where God alone should be. We put ourselves in the throne. The essence of salvation is that God puts his son where you and I should be on the cross. It's substitution. And if we turn to faith in our suffering Savior, we will be saved. There's only one way to be saved. Corey ten Boom, as you know, one of my favorite writers and speakers, put it this way. In a forest fire, there's only one place where the fire cannot reach, and that is the place where the fire has already burned. Calvary is the place where the fire of God's judgment against sin burned itself out completely. Therefore, if you don't want to feel the wrath of God, put yourself there. That is the safe place. It's the only safe place. The only place that we are safe is at the cross. It's one thing to say Christ died for the world. It's another thing to say Christ died for me. Can you say that? Have you ever said that? Because here's what I know, and here's what I want you to to hear today. God won't save good people. He won't save good people. If you're here today and you say, I'm a good person, then you are not a candidate for salvation. Because God doesn't save good people. He won't. Because good people, hear this, don't need to be saved. Good people don't need a Savior. Good people don't need someone to die for them. Good people can do it on their own. Except the Bible says... None are good. No, not one. If you are here today and you think you're a good person, then you are not a candidate for salvation. It's only when we are here today and we say, I deserve that. Everything I read, I deserve. I deserve it. That's what my sin deserved. And praise be to God that he did for me what I could never do for myself. When we understand ourselves in our sin, then we all of a sudden become a candidate for salvation. Have you ever got to the point where you understood he died for your sin? He is the suffering servant. He is the substituting servant. And then lastly, he is the sovereign servant. He is the sovereign servant. In chapter 52, verse 13, and we have it on the screen, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be held and lifted up and shall be exalted. So this section... In Scripture, before we are pointed to the cross, or before we're pointed to the suffering of Christ, we are pointed to His triumph. Now, I grew up with fairy tales, and these fairy tales, all of them, ended this way, and they lived happily ever after. Anybody else can relate to that? you are at are you guys here today? I don't know what in the world you must have had a—you must have had a tough night last night. I don't know if your team lost or what happened. Your flowers died. Um, but let's let's finish up strong. All of us, listen. They live happily ever. They live happily ever after. And even though this isn't a fairy tale, here's the deal: the prophet begins this by saying, "This is going to be a happily ever after." Even before, and even before it all happens, the prophet says, "God wins. God wins." This this sorrowful story begins and ends with victory. And then it says this in chapter fifty three, verse ten. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Just stop for a second. It was God's will to crush Jesus. It was God's will to crush him. Other versions say this. God took pleasure in crushing his son. Now, God didn't take pleasure in the agony. God took pleasure in the accomplishment that Jesus would accomplish for us what we deserved. He would accomplish for us what we need. But then it says this, He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Don't miss verse 10. He shall prolong his days. Jesus' death would not mark the end of Jesus. As I said at the beginning in Acts 2, it says it was impossible that the grave could hold him. The second the grave held on to Jesus, it began to lose its grip. Let me just say this. Oftentimes, we look at the history of the Bible, and maybe just the history of the world, because that's what it is. And we're tempted to view it like a chess match between God and Satan. Like it's just this epic series of moves and counter moves that determine um, the whole fate of humankind. That God makes a move and then Satan makes a counter move. God creates angels. Lucifer rebels against God, is kicked out of heaven and takes a bunch of angels that become demons with him. God creates people. Satan leads those people into sin and severs God's intimate relationship with those people. God responds by providing a redemptive covering over people. But on and on and on it goes throughout the Old Testament. Through prophets, through judges, through kings, through nations. Satan won't stop in his attempt to destroy God's work and destroy God's people. Move, counter-move, move, counter-move. This is how sometimes we view it all. As the New Testament begins, it must be God's move. Because... God does the incredible. He takes the king off his board and replaces that king with his son. And Satan begins now to go after that king. Satan counterattacks by tempting Jesus, trying to sabotage his mission. When that doesn't work, Satan aims to deliver the determinative, the definitive blow. He must destroy the Son of God. So on one Friday... On one Friday, Jesus hangs on the cross, and it appears as if the king had fallen. And he's placed in a tomb, yet the tomb could not hold him. Checkmate, God wins. God wins. But here's what I pray you see. In light of Isaiah 53, what was written 700 years before Christ ever came, This isn't about God making a move and Satan making a move and God not knowing what Satan's going to do and God waiting and then God making another move and trying to figure out what's going to happen. No, God had a plan from the very beginning and God knew every detail of what Satan would do. Therefore, when you think about the story between God and Satan, it's not dualism as if God is going to wonder what Satan's going to do. It's domination. God wins every time. Don't miss it. In closing, I want you to turn with me to Matthew 28. I think it's important that we turn by actually reading a little bit of of this picture, this event, this resurrection story. And in Matthew 28, when you get there, let me hear you say. Others of you, if you want to just act like you're there, let me hear you say. All right, so in Matthew 28, just follow with me here. It says this. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. And then listen to these words. Come see. Come see the place where he lay. Did you ever wonder about that stone at the tomb of Jesus? Why was it moved? It says the angel came, there's an earthquake, the angel moved the stone away. Let me just make it very clear today. that The stone was not moved to let Jesus out. Jesus doesn't need any help getting out. In fact, once the stone was moved, he wasn't there. He was already out. The stone wasn't moved to let Jesus out. It was moved to let the disciples in. It was moved so that they can see and that through them, we can see that Jesus wasn't there. Therefore, come and see. Come and see. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes people. It will change you. If you are here today and you don't know Jesus, maybe you're even here today and you're here because somebody wanted you to come or made you come, and you think in your mind you're running away from Jesus, just the fact that you're here today shows that he's faster than you. Shows that you can't outrun him. Every time you run from him and you get to the end of your running, he's there doesn't matter where you go, he is there. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, he will change you. Let me end this way. Among the things that we'll find at the tomb on that first Easter Sunday, apart from the body of Jesus, because it wasn't there, we will find a stone, we'll find angels, we'll find linen cloths, we'll find a face cloth that was wrapped around Jesus. But do you know what else you'll find? languishing in the corner of that tomb in the dust destined to be buried forever you will find all of your excuses as to why god can't change you meaning your excuses have been buried in the tomb of jesus meaning you are now without excuse he can and he will change you and he will change you now and you will be changed forever this is the message of Easter. All of our cants have been washed away, every last one of them. So the question becomes for us, has the resurrection changed you? If not, will you let it change you? Will you let it change you? As I said, if you walked in this morning and you, in your mind you're a good person, then you don't need this. The problem is God says, you're a liar because you're not a good person. All of our hearts are prone to evil. We all seek towards that which is not of God. Therefore, all of us, our need is a Savior. And let me say it one more time. For those in the front and in the back, there is only one Savior of sinners in all of the world, and his name is Jesus. Amen. Will you let him today save you? For he will save you now. He'll save you now. Now, I'm going to go ahead and ask the musicians to come forward. I just want to ask us just to bow our head and close our eyes this morning. And in this moment, as we have our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I just want to lay before us once again an invitation, an invitation to come to Jesus. If you are here today and you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, He will save you. Confess right now before Him that you have sinned against Him, that you were the one deserving of what Jesus went through, that it was your sin, that you understand that you're a sinner, and you understand that you need Jesus. And if you cry out to Him, if you turn from your sin, if you turn from trusting in yourself, and if you turn to Jesus alone, trusting Him to be your Savior and Lord, He will save you right now, and you will be changed forever. If there is any in this room who do not know Jesus may today be a day of salvation may today be the day that you cry out to God in just a second we're going to have an invitation while I will be up front we have other people who will be here if you would like to pray or like to have someone talk to you we are here we want nothing more than to see you do business with Jesus right now Amen. father in this moment in this sacred holy moment we rejoice in you Jesus We thank you, Jesus, that you are the Savior of the world and you are alive and you are well. I pray today for anyone in this room that doesn't know you that today would be a day of salvation. Today would be a day, Lord, that they call upon you and are saved. Today would be a day that they understand their sin, they understand what their sin deserves, and they understand that there is no salvation apart from you. And they would run to you, Jesus, for your salvation. Again, I pray for Christians in this room that today you would again become alive in us. That we would, as we heard at the beginning, stop seeking life where where only dead things are. And that we would seek our life again in you. Just finish this time, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.